Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brook and this is Eyes Only. Eddie listens to his earpiece. In one ear is the Taliban's radio frequency. He can hear their talking. In the other ear is the Afghan National Army's radio frequency. Every time someone speaks, it is his job to determine the value of what they are saying. Ask him what his name is, the sergeant major tells Eddie. Eddie looks down at the Taliban leader sitting on a box in front of him. He translates the question to their captive. In English, he tells the room what the captive says. In the small storage room, an Afghan judicial officer sits next to them, observing the interrogation. His presence is meant to ensure the prisoner's rights are not violated, as well as to report the information learned to his superiors. Eddie asks the prisoner what his occupation is. He replies, farmer. Eddie doesn't need to translate that word. They always say they are farmers. The interrogation is happening inside a compound in Kajakai, Afghanistan, deep behind enemy Taliban lines. It is an SAS operation, one that was last minute. The pre-operation details of the mission were classified SKSF eyes only. An intercepted coded message had revealed that one of the Qadashira's key commanders was now in Afghanistan. Usually out of reach in Pakistan, they could get him now. Within 20 minutes, they had been in the air and flying deep into the enemy-controlled valley. Their team's assault force had taken the entire compound in under two minutes. The one sole survivor now sat in the storage room. The commander they were after, who they are now interrogating on site. Afghan body language is different from Western societies. Eddie is making sure to translate that difference to the captive. Not just what the sergeant's body language means, but as well as what his tone also means. The Taliban chatter picks up in his ear. Eddie throws up his hand to silence the room. They are here, he says. They know we're here. How close, the sergeant asks. One of them is very close, Eddie says. It's time to go. The sergeant pulls the Taliban commander up and pushes him out the door and into the night air. The team moves out of the compound, heading to their extraction site. In front of them, two minesweepers sweep a path forward, dropping light sticks showing a clear path for them to follow as they go. It is cold out, yet soon the sun will come up. It is almost 5 a.m. The heat index is rising, and their mission will soon get harder. The daylight means that their cover will be gone. They have two miles to go. In Eddie's ear, the Taliban chatter is intensifying. Every Taliban fighter within 100 miles is coming their way. Eddie is in a good mood, though. He breathes in the morning air. The guys he is with are the best in the world in his eyes. They have saved him many times. As an interpreter, he is often the first person to speak, which puts him in the crosshairs. During a previous mission, a grenade had landed in front of him. He hadn't seen it, yet members of his team had thrown themselves in front of him, sheltering him from the blast. He feels safe with them. They press forward. 
The minesweepers guiding their way, no longer needing to drop a light. The sun is breaking over the horizon. Then in his ears he hears it. An excited voice. I can see them, it says. They have arrived at the extraction point. Fully exposed now, they have been seen. The sergeant tells them they have two minutes. Eddie is glad they are leaving, because he can hear what the Taliban are doing, and it is about to get very intense if they don't leave. He wishes they could call in an airstrike to cover them, yet that is against the rules of engagement. Indiscriminate fire is forbidden, so they wait. The sound of the helicopters comes into ear range. They can see them on the horizon. They look like they are dancing. The way they are moving indicates that they are taking heavy fire. A moment later, Eddie sees two rocket-propelled grenades fly past the helicopters, like you would see in a movie, yet this is very real. They assemble in two parallel lines, ready to board as fast as possible. The helicopters land, bullets bouncing off of them. An RPG flies over top of one of them. The doors never open. To everyone's astonishment, just as soon as they touch down, they take off again and fly away without them. The helicopters disappear from sight. The dust cloud around them settles. Everyone has the same look on their face. They cannot stay there. They are exposed. They hope the Taliban would assume they have been evacuated. Yet Eddie hears the chatter on the radio, and it proves otherwise. The locals are reporting their location. This is Taliban country, and there are no Afghan allies here. The minutes tick by as they decide their next move. Hundreds of Taliban are zeroing in on their position. They are on their own. In his ear, Eddie can hear the Taliban leaders from miles around calling in on the radio to report that they are heading to the valley that they are now stranded in. They have a high priority target in their possession and the Taliban is calling all forces to rescue him. Out of options and alone, they run towards an irrigation ditch. Eddie drops into the cold water. Crouching low, he moves forward. He can hear Taliban fighters three hours away saying to keep the green-eyed devils pinned down until they can get there. An endearing name the Taliban had given them due to their night vision goggles. Eddie communicates what he is hearing as they move. The mud sucks them into it. For the next several hours, they will not be able to stand upright as they fight their way to the edge of the valley. Running across exposed stretches, dodging enemy fire, it is hell, yet the only thing they can do is keep going. Eddie, with his ears tuned into the enemy's communications, keeps them from falling into ambushes as they go. The only thing keeping them alive are the ditches they are crouched in. Bullets fly over their heads the whole time. His teammate's gunfire causes him to go momentarily deaf as he struggles to listen to the enemy in his ear. Out of food and water and exhausted, they move slowly. Eddie's lower body is cold due to the water, yet his upper body is boiling. He longs to stand up and feel the breeze. Instead, all he can do is rip the arms of his shirt off, trying to find some sort of relief. 
The sun beats down on them as they go. This region of Afghanistan is cold at night, yet during the day it can reach up to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Eventually they make it to a village at the edge of the valley. The most dangerous part of their journey lies ahead. A steep climb on exposed terrain. If they can make it to the top, an evacuation team will be waiting for them. Eddie looks around the group. More have been injured. An SAS operative is being carried on a stretcher. Another operative has been shot in the helmet, half an inch from the rim. He can't believe he's still alive. They wait for the signal to run, and Eddie prepares to run up a mountain, his legs barely functioning. The pain is surreal. His training had not prepared him for this. Exhaustion is taking over. He can barely focus on the radio anymore. The first group takes off, down an alleyway, through a square, and then up the hill, carrying the wounded on stretchers as they go. Eddie watches them. They slow near the top, and that's when they start to take enemy fire. Eddie watches their medic get struck and go down. The group pulls him over the skyline and out of the line of fire. The second team takes off up the slope, taking heavy fire as they go. Using a gully running up the hill, the second group avoids being shot. Eddie watches them clear the top, and now it is his turn. The element of surprise is gone. Eddie takes off down the alleyway. His legs don't feel like they are working, yet he is running. The ground around him is being struck with bullets, its dust kicking up from the impact. The shots are coming from a building ahead of them. It's like running directly into fire, yet there's nothing else you can do. Going last is always the most dangerous. Behind him, the rest of his team follows. Their sergeant, the last one out of the valley, and the most exposed. Eddie runs as fast as he can, yet they are sitting ducks, the shots getting closer. Overhead, an Apache helicopter sees what is happening. The pilot attacks the building, saving their lives. They keep running. The pain is extreme. For every two steps forward, Eddie slides backward one as he tries to climb. The bullets shatter into the loose gravel around him as he struggles. Behind him, his sergeant is screaming at him. He has missed the entrance of the gully. The rest of the group has made it in. In his ear, he can hear the Taliban describing him as he runs. They are watching him. He is the only one in the open anymore, and the most obvious target. He flings himself sideways down the ground, desperately trying to become the smallest target he can. Scrambling on all fours, he crawls to the edge of the gully and drops down. He runs at a crouch towards the top. Everyone is struggling. The mass of loose stones is super deep and it sucks you into it like a pit. Yet it falls away from you like an avalanche as you climb. He makes it to the top and throws himself down on the ground, his whole body screaming in pain. They are out of the line of direct fire now, but it is still a four mile hike to the helicopters. The next hill is larger than the one they just climbed. They have two more hills and then a hike over flat desert. They move slow as they climb. Each member of the team takes turns carrying the wounded. 
No one has the strength to do it farther than 10 yards. It is now 2 p.m. After what seems like an eternity, they reach the top. They walk over the flat desert for an hour before they reach a helicopter. It is there to relieve them of the wounded. Eddie asks them for water, but they don't give him any. They're just there to get the wounded. They keep walking for another three miles until they reach the evacuation site. The American pilots waiting there help them aboard. As they lift off, coolers of Gatorade and snacks are handed to the tired group. They are survivors. Survivors of what has been a successful mission. A mission that has taken the long way around. 18 hours has passed since they left their base, yet they had completed the objective. The Taliban commander had been taken with them the entire way. Not a single member of their team had been killed or left behind. As they rise, Eddie looks down at the green valley below. He cannot believe how long it had taken them to go such a short distance. Janice has been living on a military base for years. His special immigrant visa status in bureaucratic limbo. It's not going anywhere. In 2009, he discovered that he was on a hit list and that the Taliban had his photo. It is now 2013 and he is in charge of all 200 Afghan interpreters working at Camp Black Horse a camp that is slated to be shut down. The Americans are leaving it and turning it over to the Afghan army. The safety provided for him and the 200 other Afghan interpreters working under him has been given an expiration date. With the closing of the base, he is going to lose his job and the only form of protection he has. He has worked closely with the U.S. for almost a decade. His success has led him to become a VIP translator for senators who visit, one such being John McCain. In November, that chapter of his life will be coming to a close. Carved into the hood of his car is a reminder that he is a marked man, a threat etched into the metal. It reads... Your day of judgment is coming. What Janice is experiencing is reflective of the majority of Afghan interpreters who have applied for visas. Many in desperate situations like his would turn to smugglers to get them out of the country. You might remember seeing images and hearing stories of refugees making daring and disastrous trips across the Mediterranean. Amnesty International would label the Mediterranean the deadliest sea crossing in the world. Many of the people making this horrific trip were fleeing the Syrian conflict. Yet mixed in with them have been many Afghan interpreters, people who couldn't wait any longer. For them, bureaucratic limbo took too long are they were flat out denied. Ben Anderson interviewed many interpreters who had sold their entire house and all their worldly possessions 
to pay smugglers to get them to Greece. Those who survived the trip upon arriving were often met with violence. Police would be responsible for some of it. A lot would come from far-right nationalist groups, such as the Golden Dawn. These refugees would end up in camps, with conditions that were deplorable. Those who would make it out of the camps were typically met with horrendous poverty. They would escape Afghanistan with their lives, yet they would not find a life in their new home. Many would try to continue on to more welcoming countries like Germany. For Janus, this never appeared to be an option he considered. He trusted Zeller to get him and his family out. He believes it will happen, yet it has taken too long. Hiding on a military base and hiding in the general public are two very different things. In his case, it will be even harder because he never hid his face through most of his service. When asked why he let his name be known while working for the U.S. forces, he said he wanted to show the Taliban that not everyone is afraid of them. In his book, Special Forces Interpreter, Eddie describes what he experienced due to his service with the SAS. If it was not for the SAS NCOs who saved me, I would have been killed in Helmand province in the early months of 2011. On three separate occasions, Eddie was attacked, his SAS friends coming to his rescue each time. Eddie would eventually be given control over all Afghan interpreters that worked with the SAS. That kind of trust is earned. Eddie would pay for that trust with death threats, not just from the Taliban, but soldiers within the Afghan army who saw him as a traitor for working so closely with foreign forces. His reputation would get mixed into the fray with the hatred for the special forces he worked with. Eddie did not want to leave. He loves Afghanistan, and he wanted to keep serving it. He realized he had no choice but to leave when an Afghan partner unit member approached him and threatened him. He told him, the British won't be around forever. One day they will leave. Then you will know that taking a life in Afghanistan isn't as difficult. A few days later, Eddie was on a flight to Camp Bastion to await a plane to get him out of the country. He arrived in Britain with a feeling of both hopefulness and loss. His fluent English would get him in trouble. He would be arrested at one point and accused for being an illegal immigrant. He had only been in the country for five days, yet they didn't believe him due to how well he spoke English. Eddie would end up locked up, serving time for a crime he didn't commit. The home office workers who interviewed him were too afraid to ask him specific questions about his service due to the secrecy around it. Fear of retribution from the SAS for interrogating one of their interpreters caused a problem for Eddie to clear his name. Eventually, he would find his release into the asylum program, where he lived in what he calls a sort of slum for almost a year. Eddie pulled himself out of that situation, finding work, and eventually becoming an interpreter for many different groups within the British government. His family escaped Afghanistan and is now spread out around the world. 
Eddie escaped the war in Afghanistan, yet he couldn't escape its consequences. He works with helping people who suffer from PTSD, something he struggles with himself. He says it is now his mission to help combat religious extremism in England, something he views as an issue and one that he feels passionately about. When asked if he regrets anything, he says there are things he would do differently. Yet he goes on to say that I would do it again and count whatever I lost along the way as worth it for that cause. It was my dream to fight for a free Afghanistan, and I lived my dream. Zeller had been patient, trusting the system, the closure of Camp Black Horse, and the impending danger the Shinwari family faced changes that. He realizes he cannot rely on the system anymore. He reaches out to the press to tell their story. He starts a change.org campaign, which raises more than 100,000 signatures within a week. Contacting his congressional representatives, he appeals for their help. Senator Tim Kaine writes a personal letter to the embassy in Kabul on Janice's behalf. Zeller's efforts work. On September 3rd, 2013, Janice and his family are suddenly notified that their visas are approved. At the U.S. Embassy, an immigrant visa is glued to their passports. They are finally leaving Afghanistan. Janice quits his job at Camp Black Horse and says goodbye after seven years of working for the U.S. They sell their house, their furniture, and their car virtually everything they own, and move in with their father-in-law to wait the two weeks until their flight. It has come just in time. Camp Black Horse is just months away from closing. Just as fast as their freedom was given, it is stripped away again. Janice gets a phone call from the embassy. He is told there's a problem with his visa. Without explanation, their visa status turns from ready to administrative processing. Their way out slips between their fingers. Janice is faced with a terrible situation. They assume that the Taliban has contacted the State Department with false information pertaining to him, a tactic they would use to stall Afghan interpreters' visas so they could have more time to find and to kill them. Janice and his family find themselves in serious danger. Without his job, he is not protected at all anymore. They are on their own. Zeller contacts the head of the consular affairs at the State Department and demands that they fix the situation. He is told he is chasing a hopeless dream. Zeller recalls his response to that statement. I said, okay, that was your final warning. I'm going to war. We have an update on a story we've been telling you about on CBS this morning. As an Afghan war vet, I would know firsthand the value of a translator. In fact, I wouldn't be sitting here right now talking to you had my translator, Janice, not saved my life in a firefight in Afghanistan in 2008. Zeller books himself on every media outlet he can find. He tells the story of the man who saved his life who was trapped. All across the country, Zeller calls on his friends to reach out to their congressional representatives. In just weeks, 
Zeller fixes Janice's visa. This time, for real. The Shinwaris, homeless and with virtually no possessions, are just trying to stay alive long enough to catch their flight. They hide every day, changing their location daily. As soon as he wakes up, and before he goes to sleep, Zeller checks in with them, sending them a Facebook message, just to make sure that they're still alive. If you want to help, please visit noonelef.org. I will link it in the description. They are an organization that helps evacuate and get visas for Afghan interpreters. Check out my next episode, and as always, thanks for listening.